You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And this is the word of the Lord. So it's a heavy text. We, we walk through this story of Peter, the, the chief disciple, right? Jesus' most loyal follower, his most vocal proponent, his probably one of his closest friends, absolutely denying Jesus, abandoning him in his time of need. So here's what I'd, what I'd like to do today. I'm going to, I want us to walk back through this story. We're going to put together just one kind of weird textual element to this. We're going to point out a couple historical elements. And ultimately, I think this text is going to speak pretty plainly for itself. And it's going to lead us to a a story from the Gospel of John. We're actually going to end our time out in 1 Peter. But, But I think, I really think that God has something he wants to say to us today. And so I would, I would encourage you, especially if this text is familiar to you, to, to be intentional about allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning. So first, let's put this in its context within the story. Remember, as Mark 14 has been playing out, we, we said that Mark 14 thematically is, is called the abandonment of Jesus, right? We, we start out Mark 14 right before the Passover. We get the institution of the Lord's Supper, the last meal Jesus celebrates with his closest friends, his last time walking with them, talking with them, praying over them, giving them encouragement and advice. And then we go straight into the garden where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Peter flies out says, never, 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 never. And then they fall asleep immediately while Jesus is praying and begging God for mercy. And then we have the scene of the betrayal where Judas arrives with armed guards and they take Jesus away captive, immediately starting to beat and mock him and all of his friends, all of the disciples who swore up and down, I will die before I will abandon you, abandon him. And then we spoke last week about how Jesus was brought to the high priest's house, Caiaphas, where he began to undergo his trials. 
And, and there's this scene where he's brought into this home in the middle of the night, and, and they, they're standing trial over him, bringing together witnesses, false witnesses who are lying about Jesus and distorting the truth of his ministry and distorting his teaching and looking for justifications to kill him. And all that comes to a head when Caiaphas point blank asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he just goes, yeah, yeah. And you're going to see me coming in power and standing in judgment over this, over this planet, over this reality. And they cry out blasphemy and they cry out death and they begin to beat him and mock him and blaspheme his ministry and blaspheme his power. And we have Peter. You see, what's so interesting about this story, right, is, and, and I'm going to be real, like, we're going to be hard on Peter this morning and he deserves it. But I also, I also want us to be a little gracious with Peter. And here's why. You see, Peter flat out fails. He makes this huge promise. I will die before I will abandon you. And about two hours later, things go crazy and he turns tail and runs. And he doesn't get much worse than that, right? But there's something about Peter where he can't give up totally. See, Peter actually does really, really love Jesus. And he really believes in him. And so, at risk to his own life, he follows the mob that has arrested Jesus. And he makes his way into Caiaphas' house. We actually have some pictures of Caiaphas' house. So I want you to see this. Um, these houses are huge, and they're kind of open. This, this is, there's a church... Um, at Caiaphas's house now, and so that's why there's like the windows in there. But, but it's this, this big, huge structure, and, and there's essentially these open courtyards, and then kind of these upper rooms. And so in one of those upper rooms, which would have been open, no glass or anything, is where the trial is happening. And down in the courtyard, around some fire pits in some areas, all the servants and all the guards and all the common people, and honestly neighbors who heard there was a ruckus and just wanted to get the sweet, sweet goss. Like, people are going to be congregated outside. And Peter makes his way into that crowd. Because here's the thing. Peter loves Jesus. He loves him a lot. And, and in this moment, like he knows he's screwed up, but he also loves Jesus too much to just run away. He has to see what happens, and so he's there in the crowd. And that's, that's important for us. It's important for us to see here that Peter is not some evil scumbag. He loves Jesus a lot. There's just a limit to Peter's love. There's a point where he hits his breaking point and says, I can't go past that. I'm too scared. I'm too freaked out. Self-preservation is kicking in. I can't go past that. But he also can't just run away. He wants to see it out. I want you to, I want you to feel that tension in Peter's heart as we walk through this story. Now, this is going to be a little convoluted, but I think it's actually important for us. We've talked about this several times, but one of the key literary features of Mark is this thing called the Mark and Sandwich, right? Where, where Mark starts a story, pauses it, tells another story, and then finishes the first story. And what happens is you build this kind of like 
And then the centerpiece becomes an interpretive lens for the pieces on the outside. There are a couple sections of Mark where he does a double sandwich. So like you got bread, ham, bread. Here it's like bread, lettuce, ham, tomato, bread, right? Like that was the worst way you could have explained that. (laughs) This is probably the most famous instance of one of these double sandwiches, and it's important to see it. So you have five scenes playing out here. You have Jesus in the Mount of Olives predicting Peter's denial and Peter saying it won't happen. That's kind of the opening of the sandwich. And then our text today, Peter actually denies Christ, right? That's the opening and the closing. Well, there's three scenes in between that. There's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is begging for mercy from God and chooses to submit to God's authority. There's his betrayal at the hands of one of his closest friends. And then there's his mock farce of a trial where he chooses to submit to earthly authority. And so what you have here is the very center of this is Jesus and Judas in the garden where Jesus kisses him and says, Rabbi, and then hands him over to be killed. This is the centerpiece of this, is abject betrayal by a close friend. And that becomes then an interpretive lens for these other two stories in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the trial. And this is more thematic, and so it's, it's harder to see this on maybe a cursory reading. But these, these next two layers are really about Christ's submission in the face of the horror of the crucifixion. He knows this is bad. And he has the power to stop it at any moment. And yet, when he prays to God the Father, he chooses submission and worship. And when he experiences the injustice of the high priest, which is really important, guys, in the Jewish context, that the high priest is the arbiter between God's people and God. He's the one who gets to go once a year and stand in the presence of God himself in the Holy of Holies. If anyone on earth should have recognized Christ for who he was, it was the high priest who brought intercession for God's people, who was praying for the coming of the Messiah, who we find out later had prophesied concerning the Messiah and Jesus' ministry. He should have seen who he was, but he didn't. And in, and in this moment of terrible injustice, he condemns his own Savior. He condemns his own Messiah. He condemns the person he's been praying for and longing for to death. And Jesus submits to that. Jesus allows that injustice. So in the middle, you see betrayal. In the next two layers, you see Christ's resolute action in the face of his coming death. And on the very edges of this, we get Peter. We see Peter making a big promise and Peter falling on his face. It's a lot going on here. We couldn't do it in one sermon. But here we are. Peter falls on his face. He could not do worse right now. And I want you to think about this. See, Peter loves Jesus to a point. Think about that. He won't won't run away. He won't give up. He follows him. He's sitting there in the courtyard. He can hear the trial going on, right? He's sitting at the campfire while they bring forward witness after witness who lies about Jesus, who calls him a blasphemer and a liar and an enemy of God's people 
who distort his teachings and his miracles into something they aren't. And the whole time, the absolute best witness of Christ's character is sitting outside the room, not saying a word. He could volunteer himself as a witness at any point. He could walk in and say, I've been with him since day one. I saw him transfigured into a perfect body. I've seen him resurrect the dead. I've heard his teaching. This is wrong. He could do that. He could come to his defense. But he can't bring himself to. And so he sits at the fire pit. And you can imagine, right? You can imagine what's going through his heart and his mind as he processes this. This is live, right? He's hearing this, this, this trial turn increasingly violent and go increasingly bad for Jesus, all the while knowing I could do something right now. It probably wouldn't do anything, but I could do it. I could stand up and I could, I could speak the truth right now. But he doesn't. And in the midst of that, he gets outed by a servant girl, right? This, this young lady who is caught up in the fervor of the moment and the condemnation of Christ on some level recognizes Peter. We don't know how. But she says... This one was with the Nazarene. And that phrase, we miss that in our reading, but that's accusational. It's, she's caught up in the vitriol of this whole experience. And she says, this guy is with him. And Peter denies it. And the phrase there is a figure of speech, but he essentially just says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not involved. I don't know him. I don't know anything. And he retreats. Too many people, too many people heard that. And so he steps back from the fire pit to kind of the entrance of this house. And again, I want you to feel this tension. He runs away, but not completely. He's sitting kind of off by himself, away from the crowd, still listening to what's going on. We don't know at what point in the trial this is. These two stories kind of happen at the same time. While Jesus is... Is, bare, is, is hearing from these false witnesses and being beaten and spit upon by the religious leaders. Peter is standing outside and he's made his way to the gateway and he's, he's still there, lingering, not acting. And the servant girl outs him again and this time she gets more people involved. She starts looking to the people around her going, see, he was with them. Look at him, don't you recognize him? And Peter denies it again, but now it's too late. He has been outed. And as the people look at him, some of them start to go, you have to be with him. You're Galilean. We recognize your accent. You have, you have to be with him. And now Peter is, he's cornered. And, and he goes really intense here. He invokes a curse, right? Like, I do not know this guy. I swear, I do not know this guy. And you need to see that Peter has crossed a line here. You see, up until this point, he has refused to acknowledge his connection to Christ. Right? I don't know what you're talking about. But now he transitions and he denies Christ himself. It's not about his affiliation. It's about the person. And he says, I do not know this man. Leave me alone. 
And at that moment, Scripture tell us, tells us the rooster crows, and immediately everything comes flooding back to Peter. And he remembers just a few short hours ago when Jesus told him this would happen. Can you imagine the weight of that moment? As, as the rooster is crowing, and he can, he can picture Jesus saying, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight. Tonight. And Peter's bravado of saying, if, if everyone else abandons you, I won't. I would die before I would abandon you. And here he is, denying Christ to save his skin. And it breaks him. He breaks down and he weeps. And I think we can get that. Right? We can feel the, the weightiness of the sin and the shame and the weakness that Peter is feeling right now. Right? Maybe, like, we're not putting ourselves in his shoes, but we can, we can feel why that would hurt like that. But I want to give us a thought as we think about this, this betrayal, right? I think part of what Mark is getting at here and how he structured this is that Judas's betrayal and Peter's betrayal are pretty, pretty much hand in hand. They're equal in kind of their weightiness. But I want you to see something here. I really think as much as this is so painful and so awful, this is a gift to Peter. Christ has given him a gift in his darkest moment of failure. And I want, I want you to kind of process this with me. You see, Peter loves Jesus to a point. His love has a limit. But Jesus loves Peter unconditionally. Jesus loves Peter completely and fully. And Jesus, in his love for his dear friend, realizes that his dear friend will hit his lowest moment at a moment when Jesus can't be with him. He, he knows, this, even in the face of his own coming suffering, Christ, we, we've seen this over and over and over over the last few chapters, that even as Christ is processing his own coming suffering, that he is thinking pastorally and lovingly and caringly for his friends. And in this moment, he knows, he knows how, how much Peter's going to feel like dirt. And so he preemptively encourages him. Because he knows he won't be there. So he tells him, Peter, this is coming. You're going to do this. You're going to. Luke gives us more detail there where, where Jesus says, stand strong. You're, you're going to be tempted. Satan's going to rip you apart. And when you come back, strengthen the brothers. You see, Jesus is prediction to Peter is not an accusation against him. It is a statement of fact and a loving encouragement from a friend. Peter, you're going to beef it tonight. Stand firm. Resist. Stay awake. 
Resist the devil. When you come back, because you will come back, when you come back, be the man I know you are. Lead like I know you can lead. Love and preach and declare like I know you can. This is not the end. See, Jesus is preemptively telling Peter that his lowest moment is not his definition. In this moment when Peter gets these sobering lenses to view himself accurately, where he sees with clear eyes who he really is, right? Peter presents himself away. He presents himself as spiritual and strong and a good leader and loyal and brave. But in this moment, Peter sees himself as he actually is, a coward and a traitor and a hypocrite, someone who will sell out his friend to save his skin. And in that moment, his Savior's words are there telling him, bro, this doesn't define you. This isn't you. This isn't the whole of your story. Look at yourself. Be sober. See this. But don't stay here. This isn't you. And guys, that, that speaks to the amazing love of our Jesus. The amazing love of our Jesus. In the midst of his injustice, he is loving and serving his friend. His friend who could be standing by him. His friend who, who could be in there fighting for justice for him. Man. Man. It puts all this different light on Paul's words later, right? This is how we know what love is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think of, I think of Paul's words in, in Romans 12. I'm going to put these up so I can actually see them. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. See, Peter is given the gift in this moment of sober judgment. His presentation of himself melts away in the reality of his weakness and his sin and his failure. And at that moment, in that moment, Christ meets him with love. And that breaks him. He breaks down and he weeps. He can't take it. He can't take the disparity between his weakness and Christ's love. Between his limited conditional love and Christ's complete unconditional love. It breaks him. And as the rooster is crowing and he's receiving these accusations, he breaks down and he weeps. I think it's beautiful that at Peter's lowest moment, he still can't get away from being identified with Jesus. You know, later, later, the same Sadducee, the same Sanhedrin would say, that guy has been with Jesus. 
They would hear his teaching and see his actions and hear his preaching and they would go, he has been with Christ. And in this moment, when he is sinning and running and hiding and full of shame and at his weakest, there are still people going, he's been with Christ. I recognize him. See, Peter cannot get away from who God made him to be and what God has called him to. His failure is not strong enough to break Christ's sovereign love for him. His weakness is not powerful enough to break God's effectual call on his heart. In his lowest moment, people still see him for who he is. That guy was with the Nazarene. I think it's beautiful, by the way, that Peter's story doesn't end here. You see, this is bad. (laughs) This is not a good time for Peter in his life. He breaks down. He's crushed by the weight of his sin and his failure. And, and how could that deeply that contrast to Christ's beautiful, powerful, immenseful, immense love for him? And he just detaches. And you even see as you read through the resurrection story, as people are going, what the heck is going on? That Peter is marveling at the resurrection, but he is detached from it. That he knows like, Jesus was who he said he was all along. And I wasn't who I said I was. When when Jesus comes back in power and perfection, you can see in Peter this mixture of awe and terror as he realizes everything he said was true and I bailed on him. And there's this moment in John, John in his telling of the resurrection story in chapters 20 and 21, where Peter essentially leaves and goes back to his business of fishing. And it's a beautiful story. You should read it maybe this week or at some point. But he, it's this amazing way that Christ interacts with Peter in this. He comes and he meets Peter while he's fishing. And he essentially recreates the miracle that he did when he first called Peter to be his follower. And Peter recognizes what's going on, and he freaks out. And him and his friends, they go on the shore, and they have breakfast with Jesus. And they sit there, and they share a meal. And after it's over, the resurrected, perfect Jesus pulls Peter aside and has a conversation with him. And in that conversation, he just cuts straight to the quick. He doesn't doesn't dance around the topic. He goes straight to Peter's heart and just goes, Peter, do you really love me? And there is this back and forth where where Jesus keeps asking Peter, are you sure you really, really love me? And Peter has to confront the limitations that he placed on his love for Christ. He has to confront the reality of the disparity between Christ's love for him and his love for Jesus. And three times Christ gives him an opportunity to affirm his love for for Christ, his love for the gospel, each one speaking over the denial he made in this story. And there's this moment when Peter has affirmed the third time, like, Jesus, I, I really do, like, I really do, I really love you. And Jesus is like, good. And that's it. 
That's what's so beautiful about it. That's it. Jesus is like, good. That's all I wanted to hear. Let's keep going. I had, like, don't love you any different than I did. Like, I haven't changed in this equation. I just want to hear where you're at. Now let's go get at it. You've got a church to lead. Holy Spirit's coming. It's going to be sick. See, Jesus doesn't make this huge deal out of it. He doesn't make Peter go and like apologize to each of the apostles and like write this formal state. He just hears him and hears his heart and his repentance and he's like, awesome. Awesome. I still love you, bro. Let's go do this. And he restores him. Because this is the love of Christ for his bride, for his beloved. He meets us in our weakness. He meets us in our failure and our hypocrisy and our lies and our betrayal. And he goes, I still love you like crazy. I already did. I did when you were doing that stuff. I do now. Can you let go of that junk and we can just keep going? Can you drop that stuff and let's just keep going? Because I already like, I definitely already died for all of that. Like, it's taken care of. Beloved, this is the gospel. Christ meets us in our failure. Meets us in our sin. He says, I love you like crazy. I love you too much to let your sin define your person. So I'm just going to take it upon myself to redefine your future. Come on. I'm going to close this out with a text that Peter wrote near the end of his life. You guys know Peter's story, right? He went and became one of the first kind of great leaders in the church. He was present at Pentecost. He preached the Pentecost sermon where 3,000 people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, came to salvation at one time. He's a big deal in Acts. And later on, he writes these couple letters to some churches, First and Second Peter. It's near the end. And he's writing to this church. It's experiencing persecution and suffering. And he's challenging them to endure their suffering well. To experience their pain and their weakness and their failure and their injustice well. And he says this. This is First Peter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can see Peter feeling his own story as he pens these words. He says, beloved, endure for a little while. God will restore you. God will strengthen you. He will exalt you at the right time. Experience this now. Don't avoid this. Be in this. See yourself with sober right eyes to know how deep your sin has wound its roots into your heart. Experience that. At the right time, God will restore you. Strengthen you. Confirm you. Beloved, if we are gut level honest, we all know that we are Peter. We all know. We know that we love Jesus on some level. We love the gifts he's given us. We love the love that he has for us. But if we're honest, there is a limit to our love. There's a point. No matter how grand our talk is, we'll go Peter. Right? Be encouraged today, beloved. You can look at yourself in that moment and you can be honest. You can actually confess the weakness of your love. You can actually be real about the self-centered heart of betrayal that dwells within you. Because Christ already knows. He's crazy about you. And he longs to restore you, to redeem you, to put his spirit within you and sanctify you. He actually delights redefining your person from death to life, from coward to courageous. Your Jesus loves to do this. So there's no, there's no point, there's no fruit to be born in lying about ourselves. We can be real. We can be weak. We can be honest. And our Jesus meets us in the midst of that. And he offers restoration. And he offers life. And he offers salvation. Well, but this is our gospel. This is our Jesus. Here's what we're going to do this morning to end out our time. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And we're going to have a few minutes where I want to encourage you guys to sit in prayer with your Jesus. To actually engage him with sober eyes. To, to be honest about who you are and honest about who he is and the disparity between the two. We're going to have a couple of prayer counselors around the room. Kim Tunnell and Mike Pajou are going to be available to pray over you guys. If you guys want to stand up so they can see you, that'd be awesome. So I'm going to give us a couple minutes if you want to sit by yourself and pray, if you want to come to one of these two people or one of our pastors and, and just be prayed over, or if you need to come speak a prayer over the church, 
You can do that. We're going to sit in that for a few minutes, and then we're going to continue our, our time of worship and response together. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. You're just so much better to me than I am to you. God, you're so faithful when I'm faithless. You're so loving when I'm selfish. God, I pray that each of us in this room be given the gift of sober eyes. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would use that honest self-evaluation to turn us toward dependence on you. just really need you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.